but um, good morning. Uh, my name is Penny. I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. It's good to see you all. If, if you are a visitor or a guest, welcome. We're glad that you're here, and I'd love to meet you after the service if I haven't had a ch chance to meet you. Um, I'd love to introduce myself, but uh, welcome. It's, it's good to be together as we come to sit under God's Word. And if you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to John chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, the, order, uh, the passage is printed in your order of service, so you can follow along there. But for the last few weeks, we've been going through these I Am statements in the book of John. There are seven of them, and we're at number four today. So we've got three more left, and then we're going to actually do an I Am Not statement. That's, that's not one by Jesus. <laughs> that's one by someone else. But, um, but we, we've got a few more left to go before we're done with these statements. And one of the reasons why we're looking at these statements, is, as you all might recall, is because they give us insight into who Jesus is. He's demonstrating and telling us, informing us uh, different, about different characteristics, different aspects of who he is. And subsequently, that has implications for our lives. What does it mean to follow him as he reveals himself to us? Now, this uh, particular I am statement is unique because uh, it comes right on the heels of the previous one. You see, often these statements are separated by time and events and different conversations. Uh, but this one comes right immediately after the one we looked at last week. And so the context is still the same. So you remember uh, what initiated that, that conversation. Jesus had healed a blind man, a man who was born blind. Jesus heals him, he can now see, and the Pharisees are now coming questioning and asking. Uh, they're not questioning in the sense of, you know, tell us more and help us understand. It's actually much more with a posture of questioning Jesus, coming with doubt and concern and trying to lead the people away. And so last week, Jesus said in response to their questions that he is the door. He is the door, and that has implications for us. But then he immediately follows it up with this statement, I am the good shepherd. He continues this theme of sheep, of sheepfold, and now he reveals himself as the shepherd. And so let's go ahead and read. We're going to begin in verse 11 of John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Our God and our Father, we do pray that as we come to your word that you would lead us and you would direct us, that you allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to be pleasing to you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray, amen. This morning, I want us to uh, start by doing a little word association. Okay, you guys know how this works. I'm going to say a word or a phrase, and I want you to think of the first thing that comes to your mind. This isn't very hard. You don't have to think very long about it. Okay, there's no right or wrongs. Okay, you guys, you're ready? You've done this before. Okay, so pretty easy. So um, pumpkin, pumpkin, what comes to your mind when you hear pumpkin? Oh, oh, you're talking back to me. Great. Um, <laughs> That's nice. Okay. Uh, so pumpkin. Okay. We think fall and Halloween maybe, right? Um, how about the Roanoke star, right? What comes to mind when you think the Roanoke star? Mill Mountain. And yeah, that's right. How about moose tracks? Yes. Awesome. That is wonderful. You guys can be part of my family. This is moose tracks. This is ice cream. Take me out to the ball game. Baseball, yeah. You see, all these things and many other things, if I started listing off other things that we could talk about, trails and leaves and, and uh, birds and all sorts of words, all these sights and sounds and smells, they invoke in us memories, right? They, they function like echoes telling us of what we've experienced previously and what we expect to experience in the future. And so when I said pumpkin, I... There was a little bit of mumbling because, you, you know, some fall, maybe Halloween. But that's what we expect, right? Pumpkin tells us it's fall. So when we experience a pumpkin outside of fall, you know, like in August at the Kroger, then it seems kind of weird, right? Like this doesn't fit in our expectation, right? Pumpkin tells us it's fall and Moose Tracks tells us it's time to eat ice cream and, and the Roanoke Star tells us we're home. Take me out to the ball game tells us it's time to stretch. All of these things, they function like echoes of pre previous experiences, and they help to tell us what we should expect for what is to come as we experience it now. Well, the same is true of, of biblical imagery, of biblical passages, of biblical ideals. And so now, now I want you to think, you don't have to say this one out loud, but I want you to think shepherd. When you put on your biblical imagery, your biblical theological glasses, when you hear shepherd, what do you see? Now, I imagine some of you think Psalm 23. Did, did anyone think Psalm 23? Anybody? Okay, so Daniel did. He's the only one who's right. The rest of no. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, there was no right or wrong. But yeah, Psalm 23, that's where we would often go, right? That was actually in our reflection. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. When we think biblically about shepherd, that's where we often go. And that's where Jesus' hearers would have went. When they heard Jesus say, I am the good shepherd, it would have invoked in them a memory of what they knew about the shepherd in the Old Testament. And what they knew about the shepherd was that he was God. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, there's something like 74 different instances in which shepherd is spoken of, and sometimes it's just talking about a regular shepherd. But often, like in the Psalms and in the prophets, it's referring to God himself. And so when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, his hearers, these Pharisees, these Jews, his disciples and followers, they would have thought of the shepherd of the Old Testament, and it would have caused them to question 
It would have caused them to wonder. In fact, that's what they do, right? We read of this at the very end of our passage in verses 19 and 20. They've heard all the things that Jesus has said. And in verse 20, some of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? He has a demon. He's a madman. He is crazy because they understood that when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, he's not just saying this analogously. He's actually taking upon himself the authority of the shepherd of the Old Testament. He is taking upon himself the claim of divinity, that he is actually God himself. And so they ask, why listen to him? Clearly, he is crazy. It's a really good question. It's a very good question. Why listen to him? Maybe some of you are wondering that. Maybe some of you this morning come and and you're exploring the claims of Jesus. You've never really considered him very seriously before. And so maybe you come this morning and you're wondering, why should I listen to this man? It's a very good question. Maybe you're wondering, like the Jews, maybe this is just simply the utterances of a crazy person. C.S. Lewis actually said that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg. Okay, that is a crazy person, right? Or else he would be the devil of hell. That's one way that we could view who Jesus is. But what I want us to see this morning is that we should not listen to those who say he has a demon and he is insane. Instead, we should listen to Jesus and what he says and does and tells us in this passage should cause us not to question him, but instead to follow him. To follow him. That we should actually agree with the other division of the Jews, those who said these are not the words who is of one who is oppressed by a demon. No, instead we would say that these are the words of God himself, the good shepherd. The good shepherd who invites us to follow, and and we're to follow him. We're not to take on that posture of questioning him. Instead, we are to take on a posture of following him because he knows us. It's the first thing I want us to see, that as the good shepherd, the shepherd knows us. And in knowing us, he pursues us. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Did you hear what he said? I must. He didn't say, I should, or I'll try, or when I have time, I'll think about doing it. He said, I must. I must. There is a sense of resolve and urgency that Jesus is going into the fields and the mountains and the cities, and wherever his sheep are, he is going to go in and pursue them. He's going to seek them out. Okay, but who are these sheep? Well, just as the shepherd had this Old Testament meaning, the sheep also has Old Testament meaning. This is pregnant with Old Testament imagery, this passage. You see, the sheep would have uh, been understood as Israel, Often in the Old Testament, we hear Israel being depicted as sheep. We see this in Psalm 100, verse 3. There the psalmist writes, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
And so when Jesus speaks of his sheep going and pursuing them, he's talking about a remnant that is from Israel, these people that would have believed and would have followed him. But it's not just Israel. That's not just who Jesus is limiting his sheep to. Because did you hear it in verse 16? He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now, in saying this, what Jesus is doing is he, he's, he's declaring that his fold, his kingdom, is not limited simply to ethnic Israel, but that it expands beyond the Old Testament people of God. That he's actually going into the nations and bringing his people to himself. And so the good shepherd isn't just God, but he's actually the fulfillment of God's promises. And what is the promise? Well, I know that uh, months ago, uh, you guys were in the book of Genesis. Is that right? That's what it said on the website. So, okay. <laughs> Y'all remember this, right? Okay. All right, good. So in, you're in the book of Genesis. And what is one of the key, I, I would say probably the central promise of the book of Genesis? Well, it's the promise made to Abraham. It shows up in Genesis chapter 12, and the reason why I say it's the central promise is because it is the promise that gets repeated again and again and again throughout Genesis. In fact, it is the promise that is driving the themes of Genesis. And what was that promise? That Abraham would be the father of many nations, and that through Abraham a seed would come, and that seed would be a blessing to the nations. And that's who Jesus is. Our good shepherd is that seed that was promised to Abraham who has come to bring blessing to the nations so that God's people would not simply be limited to Old Testament Israel, but it would actually extend beyond that. The prophet said that a heritage that was limited only to Israel was too small a heritage for God's Messiah. And it is. And so Jesus goes into the nations and he brings his sheep and we are recipients of that. Like this is good news for us because I stand here and I look around and we have a room filled with people named uh, Penny Legion and Hart and Nave and Manus and Young, right? Like those aren't very Jewish sounding names. Jesus has gone into the nations and he has rescued his sheep. He's drawn us to himself. He has pursued us. That is what he has done. The good shepherd has extended his flock beyond Israel so that every nation and every tongue and every people, black and white, European and African, Asian and Middle East, all are invited into his fold. He goes into the nations, and he pursues us. Okay, but once he sought us out, what, what does he do with us? Well, well, he seeks us out, but then he draws us in. Look at verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15, he says, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Did you hear the intimacy with which Jesus knows us? What does he draw us into? He says that the way that he knows us is the way that the Father and the Son know one another. Okay, don't, don't 
skim over that. Don't, don't just keep reading to the part where he says, I lay down my life. Like, that's the good part, right? We're going to get to that. But before we get there, he says that he actually draws us into such an intimate relationship that it is like the knowledge that the Father has for the Son. Think about that. That, that is unfathomable and astonishing both at the exact same time. Because God the Father and God the Son, who are in eternal, perfect fellowship with one another, the knowledge that they have for one another, that is the knowledge that Jesus has for you. I mean, can, can you think about how mind-boggling that is? No, you can't, because it's that mind-boggling. That is the kind of intimacy that Jesus knows us with. The perfect knowledge between father and son, that is the perfect knowledge that Jesus has for us, that intimate knowledge. Now, I don't know what that's doing for you right this minute. I don't know what kind of response that elicits from you. But I would imagine that for some of us, that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. To be known in a deep way like that might actually stir in us a little bit of fear to be known as Jesus says he knows us. It might make us feel a little uncomfortable because we're like uh, Phil Woodward in uh, the movie The Company Men. Have, have you all seen the movie The Company Men? Anybody? Wow, okay, just a couple of y'all, awesome. So um, The Company Men is a movie about, uh, that's taking place a number of years ago during the financial crisis. Y'all remember that, right? Okay, good. Okay, so, uh, um, so it's taking place in the financial crisis, and Phil is this man who started at the very low parts of this company, and he's worked his way up, and now he's in upper management. He's in his late 50s, early 60s. He's not quite ready for retirement, but, but he needs to keep working. But the financial crisis hits, and the company has to lay, lay off people and cut costs, and so Phil is fired. He's let go. Now, what's interesting about this is that after he's fired, no one would have known this. His neighbors, they would have seen him coming in and out of his beautiful house and getting in his wonderful car and putting on his suit every morning and walking out to the car with his briefcase because every morning, that's what he did. He would get in his car and he would drive off to a restaurant or a bar or a coffee shop, and that's where he spent his days until it was time to return home at the end of the night and there he would get out and he'd grab his briefcase and he'd walk back into his nice house. And his neighbors had no clue that, in, that behind all of this he was hiding. He was hiding what was really happening. The shame of losing his job was too much that he couldn't let anyone know and so he hid. And so do we. We hide all the time. We hide all the time. We hide behind the false selves that we create and we minimize our actions so that people won't prod us and we create virtual identities that are simply facades and we confess just enough sin to stop people from asking. We are natural born hiders and we have been since Adam. Do you remember what Adam did, what his first instinct was when he, after he sinned and rebelled against God and he heard God returning to the garden? Do you remember what he did? He hid. Where are you, Adam? He hid. And ever since he's been hiding, so too have we. 
And so when we hear Jesus drawing us into this intimate relationship, it could cause us to feel afraid, and we may even want to hide from the shepherd. But we can't. He knows us. He knows us. He pursues us. He draws us in. Those words and thoughts and desires, those things in the deep recesses of our mind, in the bottoms of our hearts that that we don't want anyone to see, Jesus sees them. He knows them. We can't forget the intimacy with which he draws us in, and this may cause us to feel uncomfortable, but but even in knowing that he knows us in this way, it should also, we, we should also be mindful of what else we know about him. You see, he's not just a shepherd that draws us in. He's a shepherd that is good. He's a shepherd that is good. You see, he doesn't take that knowledge and flee from us. You see, that, that's actually what our greatest fear is, right? That if people would know the things that are in my heart, and the things that I think about when I am not with other people, that, that if anyone knew those things, that they would run. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't flee. He doesn't abuse that knowledge. He doesn't take it and make us feel all the more shameful. Instead, he draws near to us. You see, Jesus' love for us is so great that that he doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us because he sees those unlovable parts of us that no one else can, and he pursues us nonetheless. See, he's a shepherd who knows his sheep, and he knows us so much that he would draw us into this sort of relationship where he doesn't shun us, but that he sees us and pursues us and cares for us. That is what he does. He moves towards us. That is the goodness that is on display in this passage. That he doesn't simply know us, but he knows what we need, and what we need is him. What we need is a shepherd who knows all those sorts of things and doesn't run, but actually pursues and comes close to us. What we need is a shepherd that knows us, but also a shepherd who defends us. It's the second thing I want us to see, that this shepherd, the one who calls us to follow, he defends us. Okay, so I asked you to put on your biblical, uh, theological hats in thinking about shepherd. Now I just want you to, to imagine what, what is the picture of a shepherd that comes to mind? If you're not thinking about biblical passages, what... What does a shepherd look like to you? Well, if you're like me, you're, you're probably thinking of um, some of the art that has been done in the past, or maybe your um, children's storybook Bibles, right? And so we have this image of a shepherd um, that, that often looks like this. It's, it's this uh, white European-looking guy, which is <laughs> kind of funny because Jesus was Jewish in the Middle East, right? But, but this white European guy with like long, flowing, Matthew McConaughey-looking hair, right? And... And he's sitting in this field of clover, and, and the sun's descending behind him in the west, and he has this sort of angelic glow, and in his lap is this cute, sweet little lamb, and there he is holding it, and it just looks so, so quaint and nice, right? Like, y- you guys have seen those pictures, right? 
they're in your children's Bibles. Like, don't, don't pretend that they're not. They are, right? Like, you've seen these pictures. And so often that's what we think of when we think of a shepherd. We have this image of this person who is just kind and gentle. Now, he is kind and gentle, right? He is intimate with us. John, the author of this gospel, actually rested his head on Jesus' breast. Like, can it get more intimate than that? But that picture of a shepherd who just simply sits and has his lamb in his lap, that's actually not a very accurate picture of a shepherd. It's not a full picture. And so what I want us to do for a minute is think about a more biblically accurate view of what a shepherd is. And the way I want us to do this is to consider David. So David, the great king of Israel. David in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, if you'll remember, uh, this is the, the story of David and Goliath, right? It's like one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Goliath, this giant of the Philistines, he's the champion of the Philistines. He's coming to war against Israel, and he calls out for, for Israel to send out their champion to go to war against him. And he's breathing threats against Israel and against God. And so David comes and he hears these threats, and what does he say? Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And so Saul gets excited because Saul, the king, who should have been going to war against this Philistine, who had abdicated his responsibility, he's now off the hook because someone said he'll go do it. And so he calls David, come, you know, like call our champion. And what does he say when he sees David? He looks at him and then goes, says, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Basically, David, you are too small and scrawny and weak and young, and you are going to get slaughtered. Okay, what does David, how does David respond? David looks at the king of Israel and says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Okay, if we have the um, European white Jesus idea of a shepherd, this isn't breeding in us very much confidence, is it? <laughs> I'm a shepherd. I'll go to war. Okay, David, right? Like, that's not going to stir in us this great confidence that Israel is going to win, but then he doesn't stop there. He actually tells us what a shepherd did. He says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck down both lions and bears. You see, a shepherd's work was wrought with danger. And to be a shepherd, one had to be strong and courageous and had to go to great lengths to defend their sheep. And that's what the good shepherd does. Jesus contrasts himself with the hired hands in verses 12 and 13. Look there, he says that the hired hand is not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The hired hand leaves. He runs. But not Jesus. Not Jesus not the good shepherd, he stands and he defends, and he defends to the point of laying down his life. Four times in this passage, Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep, verses 11, 15, 17, 18. He doesn't flee, he defends, and he defends with his very life. He willingly sacrifices himself to the point of death in order to preserve for himself his sheep, 
to defend us, to deliver us. But look, here, here's the thing. So, so the human shepherd who goes and seeks after his sheep, he might seek to go and defend them, and he might try and take them from the wolf, and he may actually lay down his life. And in rescuing the sheep and laying down his life for the sake of the sheep, he actually leaves the sheep vulnerable all the more. Right? Because who's there to defend them again? And it would be easy for us to think that when Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep, that, that we're in that situation, in that circumstance. That Jesus has laid down his life for us, but, but now we're left vulnerable. I mean, who will defend us the next time the wolf and the bear and the lion come if he has laid down his life? But Jesus isn't like other sheep, other shepherds. Listen to what he says in verse 18. He says, no one takes it from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. See, Jesus doesn't simply go to his death to defend his sheep. He rises again from the grave. And in rising again from the grave, he defeats those enemies that may come again. In fact, Jesus, the one who would lay down his life in his resurrection, has defeated death itself. And so by laying down his life, by going to the cross, his blood is shed and sin is atoned for. But in his resurrection, he defeats that death. You see, the good shepherd rose to deliver us from death. And if he remains in the grave, then we are still victims. We are still vulnerable. But the grave is empty. Y'all, the tomb is empty. There is nothing there. Because he has risen again and he has ascended into heaven. And there he defends us and secures for us eternal life. That is what he does for his sheep. He doesn't leave us vulnerable anymore. In fact, he has defeated the very enemies that would seek us out. He has secured for us life and life everlasting. That's what he says later on in the chapter. Later on in chapter 10, uh, most commentators think that days, uh, maybe even weeks, have gone by. And he's talking to some different people now. And he's taking up this theme again of the shepherd and sheep. And there he says in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Did you hear that? No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. No one can take you from the shepherd's presence. that your life is secure, that nothing can remove you from our Savior. That is what he has declared. That, friends, that our good shepherd, he defends us by giving up his life and rising again to ensure us that our life is secure. Because he knows us, because he defends us, because he makes us his flock, I mean, this changes everything. 
This changes everything. We need not fear the wolves and the lions and the bears. We need not fear the enemies that may speak ill against us. We need not fear, but we can go with courage. This changes everything because we are his and he is ours. He's actually united us to himself because we are part of his flock. This one flock with this one shepherd. That he has united us to himself. And so this means that, that there's nothing that he cannot ask of us. And there's nowhere that he cannot lead us. Friends, that every single part of us, our finances and, and our thoughts, our words and our desires, our vocations and our families, they all belong to him who is good. This changes everything about us. We need not fear, but we can go with great courage. We can go with courage because he is the one who knows us and defends us. He's the one who has secured for us eternal life. Now, earlier I quoted C.S. Lewis, and if, if you're familiar with that quote, you know that I stopped short. <laughs> because C.S. Lewis didn't just stop by saying that Jesus was a lunatic, right? So that, that's a good thing. Um, C.S. Lewis said, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would be a lunatic. But Jesus wasn't merely a man. He's right. A mere man who said the things that Jesus said would be a demon or he would be a lunatic, but, but Jesus wasn't merely a man. Lewis goes on and he says that instead of thinking of him as the, some of the Jews thought of him that day, instead of viewing him in this way, that instead we should fall at his feet and we should call him Lord. We should call him Lord because Jesus is none other than God incarnate. He is the good shepherd and by his death and resurrection, he not only claims us for himself, but he unites us to himself. So we follow him. His thoughts become our thoughts. His desires become our desires. His words are the words that are now on our tongues. We're not called to follow a mere man whose authority and whose leading may be detrimental, but we are called to follow the good shepherd who defends and secures for us a life that no one else could by laying down his life. And so, friends, don't, don't make the same mistake as some of those Jews that morning. Don't make the same mistake as they who heard him that day and thought he is a demon or insane, or maybe even that he is simply a moral teacher. No, he is none other than God himself. He's the good shepherd who he calls us to follow. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have sent your son, our Lord Jesus. He is our good shepherd. He is the one who has gone before us and done what no one else could do. And so we fall before him and declare he is our Lord and our God. We ask that you would lead us and direct us, that you would show us the way, that your words would be our words, your desires would be our desires, your mind would be our mind, and that our lives would be lived in constant praise and worship of you. We pray this in the name of our King. Amen.